Bilingual in America. Tunei el loga fi America. Bilinguismo negli Stati Uniti. Bilingue in America. Ser bilingue en America. I'm Suzanne Lasser. I'm Yarina Sancion, and this is Bilingual in America. I'm Suzanne Lasser. Today, my co-host and I are joined by Dr. Kathy Escamilla and Mario Palma, and they are going to be sharing some key information with us that you are going to want to listen to. So before you sit down and get comfortable, grab a pen and some paper because the gems of wisdom that you are going to experience, you will want to take note of. So welcome to both of you. Thank you. Nice to be here. Likewise, nice to be here. So there are so many things we want to talk about in terms of the science of reading. And we are going to... um, Keep in mind that our podcast is about a 30-minute show, and we'd like us to really just get started by, Mario, let me asking you, you know, over the past few years, there's this, been this buzz in the instructional reading community over the science of reading. Can you share for our listeners what the science of reading is and the renewed energy it has really brought to the conversation on how best to teach students to read? Absolutely. Uh, The science of reading uh, has really revolutionized the way teaching students how to learn to read. Uh, It's really revolutionized that process. It's brought about a new conversation that many teachers uh, who thought that they were doing right by their students really realized how much, how little they knew about how the brain changes and is altered through the process of learning to read. So I'm very appreciative of the body of research that's come out. It's not really new. uh, It's just that Finally, uh, the research is now matching up to policy and now impacting instruction. So the American Reading Company has taken this head on. Uh, We've updated a lot of our materials to make the research-based practices that were already there even more evident, even more clear. At the research level, the theory of orthographic mapping, the process of orthographic mapping really is at the core of the science of reading. And the process of orthographic mapping is the process by which students are able to uh, take the sounds that represent language, right? The language is representative, and then to match those sounds uh, onto the letters, onto alphabet, into the alphabetic letters. And so through that process, we want students to be able to learn that spoken language is made of sounds. We call those phonemes, and that phonemes eventually are added onto graphemes, right? What we otherwise know, know as letters. And so that process of learning that each sound, repre- each letter has a sound that's repre- that it represents, uh, able to be able to decode fully through a word. Uh, it is through the process of orthographic mapping that a word becomes a sight word, something that is known, that's a word that is recognized with automaticity. So I have learned a lot about how the brain has, uh, the brain develops when it's learning to read. Many authors have come out of the science of reading research. One of the books that I love the most is Proust and the Squid by Marianne Wolf. Uh, she's a neuroscientist out of Tufts University. And she really maps out how the brain was altered as soon as we took language and decided to put it into print. Quite a miraculous process, the adaptivity that our brain has. 
And so once the brain is able to go through that process of orthographic mapping, where students can recall words literally in less than a second, uh, we then go into morphological mapping. Uh, and so those are some of the two main areas that uh, we support teachers in uh, developing sound instruction. But what I'm really excited to learn more about is how this research does apply in some instances to multilingual learners, how it applies in bilingual education. How do you take this process of orthographic mapping, much of which the research was done with English-speaking students. How does that work with non-English-speaking students? And so that's why this, this conversation is so important. Thank you for that definition. I, you know, people often want to say that the science of reading is, is this one little piece. It's all about um, phonological awareness or, you know, or it's all about phonics. But uh, I appreciate how you've, you've given you know, some clarity to what is it and how we're looking at how the brain changes while someone is learning how to read. I don't, in all the years of my training, I've never heard anyone actually talk about that part. So in your work, what would you say are some of the implications now for literacy instructions? I know you spend a good portion of your time talking to educators and how they're shifting that part of their practice. Absolutely. So you mentioned a few really important parts of the orthographic mapping process. Uh, I would probably uh, ask our listeners to look up a very simple image that has uh, really simplified something that's very complex. So we call it Scarborough's rope. Scarborough's rope helps us understand the process of orthographic mapping to include two parts, the recognition of words, right? The process of mapping, graphing to phoneme, otherwise known as decoding, uh, but also not at the expense of what he calls language comprehension. So I, thought it's, I think one of the biggest parts of the way it's revolutionized instruction is to make sure that you one does not go out go without the other. You have to have language comprehension in tandem and happening simultaneously with decoding in order for reading comprehension to occur. So Scarborough's Rope has really helped our teachers understand the process of how to engage instruction that unites both, that doesn't uh, take that doesn't separate the two because they are inextricably linked. Uh, when you're looking at the process of decoding, we wanna make sure that teachers understand that a student's language and their language assets is their best friend. It's the highest leverage asset that you wanna work with uh, because when you are learning that language is made up of sounds, you should learn the sounds in the language that you speak. And so we often start with helping students understand how to break down the sounds uh, that they hear in the language that they are native in. So uh, when you are breaking down those sounds, we call that phonological awareness. The fact that I could say uh, the word Kathy, and I'm gonna ask you to isolate the sounds in the word Kathy, right? So one would understand that Kathy has four sounds in it, right? You have that initial k sound, you have the digraph TH, and then E at the end. And so I'm not showing any students the word Kathy just yet, uh, because all I'm doing is engaging in phonological awareness, the, the awareness that a student has of the sounds that exist in spoken language. But it doesn't end there. You then have to make sure that they're able to map out phonolog phonological awareness to how those individual sounds are represented with letters in the alphabet. And so we move away from phonological awareness as a platform into the world of phonics. And so in order to be able to be successful with the process of learning how uh, sounds work in terms of reading, you have to start with phonological awareness. You cannot jump right into phonics. You have to be able to understand and manipulate the way sounds exist in spoken language. But it doesn't end there, right? Once you start mapping out graphene to phoneme and engaging in the process of decoding in phonics, 
you want to get engaged in this process of word study. And so the way our materials are set up, it's really about taking patterns that you've noticed in words that you've mapped from sound to letter, and then taking those patterns and applying it across the board, right? It is what we call high real transfer. How can I take the knowledge and the patterns, uh, the knowledge that I'm gleaning from the patterns that exist in written language, and apply that to a bevy of other words, right? So that I become less dependent on instruction and, and have more agency in terms of taking what I know to figure out what I don't know. And so imagine phonological awareness, phonics and word study kind of interplayed, right? These kind of overlapping circles all surrounded with the most important part, which is practice. Uh, and I think what's missing a lot from today's instruction, unfortunately, is that there's lots of teaching going on I don't know how much practice is going on. How can I take what I've learned and really apply it to books independently through partner reading? So that way we don't lose sight of the fact that all of this research is so that students can read actual books. And so hopefully that's a nice breakdown to really understand what it is that we're actually getting at. So important that you voice, like what is the ultimate goal here? Right. So that children can actually read books. Could you just repeat, you said high something transfer. High road transfer, yes. Uh, it's, taking, it's taking a skill, right, that I've learned and being able to generalize it across multiple contexts. That's when you know something's actually been learned. I can say that I've taught something and that the student was successful in this one particular instance, but when I really know something's been retained, something's been mastered, is when I see the student take that skill and apply it across a variety of situations. So that high road transfer really is what we're getting at. Uh, we're trying to take our instruction right, with students and have them apply it independently uh, across many venues. Mm. Yeah. One of the things I'm thinking about as you were talking is this idea of practice, practice, practice. It's one thing to teach, it's another to, as you said, have them apply it. And if they're not applying it, then they're not going to get to this place where they can do that high road transfer, which shows us that they are ready for what's next. Yeah, so speaking of what's next, so Kathy, you know, in a recent NCEL article entitled Toward Comprehensive Effective Literacy Policy and Instruction for English Learner Emergent Bilingual Students, it said, and I quote, at the heart of this work is the fundamental understanding that the development of language and literacy for students with two or more languages is distinctly different from monolingual literacy development. With this in mind, can you share with our listeners, especially our teachers who are listening today, the elements of effective literacy instruction? Thank you, Mario. That was a very good explanation of the science of reading. And so I'll say from the NCEL perspective and uh, children who are learning to read in English as a new language or as a second language or concurrently um, because they're simultaneous bilinguals, their task is different than monolingual English speaking kids. And I want to underscore something that Mario said, that the research base that we have was largely done by monolingual researchers on monolingual English-speaking kids and applied in some cases without question and with impunity to kids who are learning English as an additional or second language. And that's very important in our work and it's a very important distinction. The international reading literature is a bit different in that researchers frequently cite the U.S. database as one that, that reeks of alphabetism 
And many of the kids in the world aren't learning to read in alphabetical languages. And so to think that we there's this universal principle that's equally applied to all children, no matter what language they speak, is questionable. But that said, here's what I want to say. In a, in a word and for teachers, kids who are learning to read, if you are in classrooms where English is the medium of instruction, you are charged with teaching two language kids to read in English. You have to understand that you are teaching kids who are learning to read English at the same time that they are learning to understand and speak it. By virtue of that one sentence, that makes second language kids different. Um, so I wanna give you a sentence to use and tell you how this would be taken on differently by a second language student, a kid who's learning English as an additional language or a new language. The teacher says, and this is common and frequent, and it's not that the teacher's doing anything wrong, says, okay, friends, let's clap the number of sounds you hear in SOFA. Now let's unpack that. Sounds simple. Everybody, what is the teacher saying? Okay, friends, what, first of all, what second language kids have to do, they have to disentangle the teacher talk from what they're actually supposed to do, from what the goal of instruction is. That makes the whole thing different than for monolingual kids. So, okay, friends, what does that mean? It's the teacher's nice way of getting kids' attention. Sit down, be quiet, listen, because we're not supposed to say shut up or, or anything like that anymore. I could do that <laughs> back in my day, not anymore. Okay, okay, friends, that's an invitation to join the lesson. But it's not really an invitation. It's more like a command. <laughs> and then the teacher says, let's clap. I got to know what that means, that we're going to put our hands together, let's clap, which is also not an invitation, because poor kid who doesn't do it. Zochil, did you hear what I said? Let's clap, which means that, you know, okay, friends, that's a different tone. It's taking on the, hey, you weren't paying attention. So let's clap the number of sounds. What conceptually do I have to know? Sound. I have to know that sounds go together to make a word. And I have to know that word somehow has a particular meaning. So when we clap, oh, ah, uh, I have to know that all those words are supposed to gather to make go together to make sofa. And so when we say four, it's not just four that counts. It counts that all those sounds go together to make a word called sofa. And hopefully the kids ha have to know what sofa means. And it's questionable because the, the jury is out about how many picture cues we can use in the new science of reading programs. And this is where a picture is particularly important for a child who's just coming into the language. So there's, there are quite a few different things, as simple as it sounds to say, it is different for kids who are learning to le learn, at, listen, and speak to a language they are learning to write, it is quite different for second language kids. I will say this, what is of great concern to a lot of us is what is not what is in the science of reading, it is what has been omitted. And two big things that have been omitted are oral language development, which is really different than putting your hands together to say, oh, ah. that has its place. No one's saying it doesn't. That isn't oral language development. Second language kids need good oral language development and they need and they need writing from the very beginning. And in alphabetic languages, especially those that are more transparent like Spanish, writing is almost more important to learning to decode than reading. So there are quite a few differences. And again, not taking away from what's there, but saying it's insufficient because it's largely a monolingual English database. It's so important that you highlighted the pieces that are being omitted that is 
in particular, really support language learning, the oral language development, which I think all children need, but especially our bilingual children or multilingual children who are learning many languages. And then the writing, oftentimes teachers think that the writing is such a huge task, but what you're sharing is that it has to happen immediately and that it really does support that second language acquisition. Yeah, so, so in Mexico, when teachers know kids can decode is when they can take dicta- dictation, dictados. That's when teach, that's how they assess for children's ability to decode. So powerful. So <clears throat> in looking at the science of reading in English, what would you say when, when comparing it to the science of reading in Spanish, what would you say are some similarities or some differences? Are there any similarities? So first of all, there's no such thing as the science of reading in Spanish in Spanish speaking countries that comes happens here whenever something happens in English, some counterpart happens in Spanish, but in in Mexico and other places it's called literacy and it's called Mm -hmm. language with a capital L and so it would be unthinkable to not to reteach reading absent oral language development, absent metalinguistic development, absent writing, it would be just unthinkable. And so the narrowing of a curriculum to a pretty pretty narrow look at foundational skills, which is what the science of reading is being called, to phonics. And we've narrowed the reading curriculum that to be quite small at where, for which we're giving quite a lot of attention in a literacy block. And you wouldn't see that in Spanish speaking countries. Kids learn to re- listen, speak, read, write, and do metalinguistic development all at the same time. And I, I think that's a comprehensive literacy program. That's what I would hope that kids here continue to get as we hone in on, and again, not taking anything away from the need to hone in on how to teach foundational skills and how to do it better. In If I were gonna limit what I say to that, in Mexico, for example, they pay very little attention to the teaching of phonics. As a matter of fact, a colleague, Claude Goldenberg, did research and published a big study in 2014 where kids in Mexico receive very little phonics instruction or phonemic awareness instruction the whole regiment of the part to whole uh, instruction before they learned comprehension. Then they moved on to, yeah, there's this thing called a letter sound. So again, that was published in 2014. That's quite a difference. So you you wouldn't see now that the U.S. is diverging research that says that in Spanish-speaking countries, the word is the unit of analysis and comprehension is the goal of reading. Mario didn't say it wasn't. I mean, that, that's exactly what you said, too, is that the, the good stuff is, do we understand and can engage with what we're reading? That's, that's the good stuff. Yeah, I think we need to keep in mind that for bilingual teachers out there that are teaching English and Spanish, is not that they are just experts in the language of instruction that they're, uh, that they're responsible for, but that they understand the relationship between the two languages and the differences that exist in either uh, as well. So we know that the internal structure of the English language is on set and rhyme. Uh, it's very different from the syllabic nature of Spanish. And so although a lot of research does say that the more aware you are of the individual phonemes in the language that you are speaking, uh, the more aware that you are of them, uh, that then becomes a platform, an on-ramp uh, to, become, to have more mastery uh, with, ma- with mapping, grapheme, and phoneme, letter and sound. We need to make sure we don't forget 
the best way to learn Spanish is syllabically, right? To understand the syllabic nature of the internal language. So if I might take the, the word mama uh, and be able to individually sound out those letters, uh, but we can't lose sight of the fact that mama really has two syllables in it. Uh, and that's the way the entire language is structured. I think you can take the best parts of what the science of reading has to offer uh, and, really, and, and really apply it. Uh, in the right context, but I think English and Spanish teachers are having new conversations that the science of reading has brought about to make sure that they're clear about instruction that is authentic versus instruction that is forced by research that maybe wasn't representative of the populations that we're responsible for. So it's important that we don't lose sight of that. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I think that one of the falsehoods that sometimes we see in dual language programs is that the English zone teacher feels that the Spanish zone has to mirror each program exactly. And so mm -hmm. your literacy practices could look different because your target language is different. So I feel like people don't allow themselves that flexibility of, of just really honoring the language that they're teaching and the literacy that they're teaching. Yeah, I want to reiterate about, you know, the way we define science of reading is a, is a body of basic research in developmental psychology, educational psychology, cognitive science, and cognitive neuroscience on reading. It's literally one of the most complex human behaviors uh, out there, um, but it's not just about phonics. And I think what binds English and Spanish is that it should be nested, it should be situated in language comprehension instruction. Uh, and so a lot of the work that we do in terms of professional development is teaching teachers uh, how to engage in decoding and word study, but in the context of language, in the context of actual authentic reading. And although it may be new for some teachers, Morning Message is a perfect example of how to do that, right? Morning Message is a staple for many kindergarten through second grade classrooms. Uh, it's a way of creating community. It's a way of messaging what the ongoings of the day will be. What better way than to situate some of your focus uh, phonics uh, standards, some of your foundational skills, uh, what, better what better way to situate that in the morning message to engage in language comprehension simultaneously while you're engaging in word study, decoding phonics and phonological awareness. Uh, another way to, uh, to do this is by making sure that when you're teaching foundational skills that they're not just done in isolation, that they always end up being applied in, uh, even if it's in a small group, in small group instruction, applied to text, applied to independent reading. Reading. So that way students understand that decoding and language go together at all times. Absolutely. Yeah. Do you want to add to anything there, Suzanne? Just thinking about how we know, even before this conversation, best practices for second language learners is about doing things in context, building background, nothing in isolation. Mm -hmm. And that, right, has to always remain at the forefront. And then it makes me think about what Kathy said, right? This idea of the capital L literacy and language in, in terms of what we know that it involves when we think about reading. What is the ultimate goal of reading? To have meaning. Absolutely. So um, I wanna pivot back to you, Kathy. Um, I know that you're always an active advocate and always up to something. So could you share with us, what are you currently working on now? I'm working for National Center for Effective Literacy, and um, there, there are a group of us, and we are concerned with the narrowing of the curriculum. I mean, please quote me, not one of us is against the teaching of foundational skills. Especially for our growing multilingual population, foundational skills is not enough. 
the, the need to integrate the way that we teach skills is not the way we see the science of reading practices being taken up by many of our states districts when they're doing isolated phonics teaching for 30 minutes a day in kindergarten to, to don't speak English. That is not what the research says. Mm -hmm. um, and that, uh, even the National Reading Panel said all of the, the foundational skills that are being evoked right now need to be taught um, in an integrated way, need to be combined with meaningful texts. And none of that research, they said, was to be applied without question to kids who are learning English as a second language. So, but there, there is research out there that tells somewhat of a counter narrative, and I think it's incumbent upon us to know what it is. This is so empowering for our teachers because I'm still in a school and the daily conversation, the daily question is, are we doing the right thing? We're being told to do one thing. My heart says another thing. I feel like teachers are at constant war with themselves and making themselves sick uh, in trying to honor um, both sides of the conversation. And so it's so comforting and, and so rewarding for them to be able to go to a place now where they can get clarity and 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 that someone has their back. So I, I thank you. Yeah, Adio. there are there are resources and there are a lot of people who are willing to help. If you want more information about the science of reading, a really good video that's available uh, on YouTube, Cortex, right? So your Cortex, not like your Cortex, like you're reading a text in your core instruction, but Cortex as a part of your brain Cortex. Cortex in the Classroom, Advancing the Science of Reading in the Early Years uh, is a very good resource uh, to begin with if you are into videos. Uh, and then Shifting the Balance is another book that we have all of the American Reading Company literacy coaches, both monolingual and bilingual, read, particularly chapter one uh, that talks about the phonological processing system, the meaning processing system, the context processing system, uh, four-part processor, uh, it goes really in, de in depth in terms of the research that's been done on the brain when it learns to read. I also wanted to put on people's radars a uh, researcher that has recently joined our academic advisory board. Kathy, I'm sure you're familiar with her work, uh, Julie Washington. Um, she's recently written an article with Mark Seidenberg teaching reading to African-American children uh, where they talk about students that she, uh, she, she, coins, she uses the term bi-dialectal speakers of English, students that speak language, uh, English language variations that may differ in terms of their uh, structure in, uh, as opposed, they may differ in terms of their um, structure from the English that is learned in books and in school. And being able to make sure that teachers honor the different varieties of English that they encounter amongst their students in their classrooms. So that way they're not sending messages that your home language practices are, any, uh, are in any way deficient or less worthy of learning, you know, just because we're learning to read actual books and uh, perhaps engaging in language that is academic in nature or has to do with more disciplines, making sure that we have both going on. So just wanted to put those out there. It's research that is fairly new, but that we are dedicated to exploring even more. At the same time, these are exciting times. Education has coming out of this focus of the pandemic and we're moving forward. And uh, certainly we're going to devote more episodes to this conversation. It's a worthy conversation. And we want to get the word out. We want teachers to know that what their gut tells them is what they should need to be listening and, and to seek out information, to seek out advocates that they don't have to fight this fight on their own. 
We are so grateful to you, Mario Palma and Dr. Kathy Escamilla. You continue the good fight. I, I, I want to drink the water that you drink. I want to have the rituals that you have that, mm -hmm. that feed your soul so that you continue to be in the front lines for educators. We are so um, grateful for the work that you continue to do every single day to support our teachers, our administrators, and at the end of the day, really our students and our families that, that really need to have that support. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your interest in the stories we share. By sharing, following, and liking our podcast on anchor.fm, Bilingual in America, and our Instagram blog at bilingualinamerica.podcast, you are speaking your beauty. We welcome your comments and feedback, and we appreciate your support. Follow us, like us, share us. 